hard. Okay. So, uh, Veda, can you um, tell us? We had an email, or actually a a, a text exchange uh, in Skype, where you were saying you mentioned a couple of names, both of which are, as far as I know, monks. One's in Australia. And the other one is in uh, not sure where, but both of them are Westerners. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyway, what what were you saying that they were saying about what the teachings of the Buddha were? Most specifically, it was about um, a series on dependent origination and in that about uh, karma and the law of karma right guess what it's uh, not a law <laughs> it's an observation with it's a not high what? error it's an observation with high error rate the signal to noise ratio on karma is uh, astounding <laughs> for anyone who is uh, has any signal uh, systems hardware in their background. Right, signal to noise ratio. So anyway, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. No problem. Um, it's very it's it's interesting to see that if you try to find any material people debating Kama, for instance, on YouTube, that you find a whole lot of Hinduism and alternate yogi stuff and a very lot of what we would consider the magical explanation of <clears throat> Kama, but not really uh, something that is comparing all those. I I know, but you're you're giving me now your opinion. I want to hear what you heard from them. What is their opinion? That's what I you know. That's the yeah, meat yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I'm 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 coming to that. I'm coming to that. <laughs> I'm making I'm short. I'm making short. So, uh, and in that particular uh, series, I then found of uh, two pretty known uh, Western Buddhist monks. Uh, I don't know if this is okay for me. It's not a problem to say their names. I don't care. Bhikkhu Sujato and uh, Ajahn Pram Brahmali. Right. So Brahmali. they were specifically talking about that without the law of karma, the law of karma, so they understand it in the way uh, it's uh, 
literally uh, told by the suttas uh, with multiple lifetimes and so on. There uh, is no mention of multiple lifetimes and so on in the suttas. Well, that's what they <clears throat> state, let's say. I know. Uh, I understand that. Okay. But um, for, there was a for kind example, of... A, all right, go ahead. For, for, ex for example, uh, teaching it the way you teach it. I mean, they're, they're even mentioning, mentioning it specifically the way, uh, not telling any names, but the way you're teaching is it in one lifetime uh, is incorrect. Okay, well, let's put it this way. Even if there were many, many lives ahead of you, or you had the choice to end it all now and get rid of all your grief right now and just go ahead and be happy and just be at peace at, while you're at peace, then there's no coming and going anymore. And you can do that and still have legs to walk on and food to eat and a big smile on your face. <laughs> all right, and we can stop becoming. We can stop being selfish. We can stop being afraid. And when do we stop doing that? When we remember to. But anyway, we're all into it now, and we still haven't come to that one liner that you had put in there that uh, I, I can imagine what they were saying because it's in print in the um, Wikipedia on Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa where somebody takes a dagger and stabs Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa in the back and in the process uh, writes the name of Bhikkhu Bodhi on the dagger. Who knows? But the dagger mm. is, is that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is wrong and not only wrong, but he is dangerous. He will corrupt our youth and destroy Buddhism. Now, those are pretty powerful words there, especially when it's supposed to be an article about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, not about his critics, <laughs> which, by the way, seem to be all Western. Hmm. That, that in fact, the, uh, uh, in, in Thailand, the big, big heavy criticism that he received got started in the 1930s, and by, gosh, by the mid-50s, uh, not only was it all over, but he was kind of like the the, the crown prince of the of the Dhamma, uh, in the sense that he represented Thailand uh, at the world's uh, conference. I think 1954 through 56. It, it spanned just a little over a year, um, and. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was the representative from Thailand, and he gave both the opening address and the closing address and presided over the entire world conference. Now, how much controversy and put down kind of stuff. So it's basically, no, he's, I mean, that was really ancient news by now. And the Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is fairly well accepted and in fact mixed right back in with uh, ordinary Buddhism, which is where it belongs anyway, because we all start off ordinary. And and so the ordinary belief is yes, and we can talk about it first off in this way. 
if we can just jump right in. I mean, Beta, do do you first off before we do jump in, do you uh, agree with what they were? That's their opinion. Is, is that that it's wrongheaded and dangerous to teach uh, uh, that whether there are next lives or not is irrelevant to what kind of life is this going to be? Well, it depends on how you look at it, right? And the problem with all this stuff is always that uh, especially the audience, uh, those, let's say, beginner uh, uh, didactics, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's supposed to lay the foundation for, for people. So this is the thing which, which makes it so confusing for people. All right. Now, if we're going to do it properly, then that would mean that we need to see these cause and effect relationships that in fact in the lion's roar and sutta number 12 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha specifically talks about that you understand the law of karma in the sense of mere cause and effect. You drink poison, you get sick and you might die. That's a cause and an effect. Um, riding, <laughs> riding down the street on a bicycle at the age of 10, screaming racial epithets in a neighborhood that have black housemaids is going to get that kid in a lot of trouble. That's a guarantee. Okay. <laughs> he may ride down that street again, but he's not going to ride back up. <laughs> Uh, and that's especially true in the racial South. So uh, the the point that we're making here is is that the law of karma is immediate. It's not long term and long lasting. That this is what the Buddha teaches is a Nietzsche. Things are constantly changing. Hmm? And so um, there's also the distinction which Westerners don't generally make. You know, one of the things that's quite interesting is, is that not only did Buddhism come uh, kind of ill-packaged from the beginning and ill-taught, but it also had a predecessor, and the Buddhism rode on the heels of or on the, uh, the coattails of Hinduism that had already arrived and had gotten established in the West. But that's how I got started, was in an ashram in uh, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, back in the middle 70s. They had already established it really strongly then. We also had things like Harry Krishna's, and that you could all, almost blame it all on the Beatles going back into the 60s, so that we became in love with all things Asian. And that was also part of the Vietnam War is let's go look at Asia and let's go find some better stuff than what we've got in Vietnam right now. And so all of that combined together then had that influence. And so let's take a little poll. I've got a question for everybody. Does anybody know the distinction between reincarnation and rebirth? I mean, there is actually a technical <laughs> definition, but very few people know what that technical definition is. Does anybody know? The rebirth is uh, playing with 
dominoes and uh, reincarnation is uh, one solid thing from one body to the next. Okay. Could you say that something like reincarnation is is much more solid and fixed, and reincarnate and rebirth is kind of gushy? Rebirth is is uh, the way they they uh, teach it is like uh, the information that gets uh, transmitted is not uh, it's like it's like sending an information to a radio and there is there is an old radio and a new radio but the information is somewhat the same okay so you're talking about old radios and new radios in the sense of uh, signal to noise ratio and error correcting logic or That's another way of, or another way of talking about it would be that uh, Reincarnation is more deterministic, and that rebirth is a little more not quite so sure. That's that's actually a better way of looking at it, because that's it going in the right direction. That's fine. Yeah. Yes, go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, I was uh, as far as I know. I think probably someone who keeps being, who takes reincarnation and they all go to find the new earth, Dalai Lama's next body or something in a child, you know? So it's something, something solid keeps taking on new forms. It goes on to the next body, the next body. Ah, now you're narrowing down to it. Something solid that's at the core. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's like this, this entity keeps going on and on. Like it's something separate. It's all right. There is a technical term for that. It's called a soul, and we're not talking about fish and feet. Do you know what? I, do you know that joke? A soul that's not fish or feet. The soles of your feet, and there's a kind of a fish called a soul. Looks like a flounder, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> yes, that's the whole idea is that there is, is a soul and that that soul is quite solid and that after one dies, it's strong enough and solid enough to survive even death and it keeps going on and on and the owner it goes, the more it's called eternalism. But even within Hinduism and in the teachings of Jesus, everything eventually will come to an end. And yet that eventuality is what is called semi-eternalism. And then the next one is uh, called annihilationism. And annihilationism is when uh, the body breaks up, the existing being is annihilated. When the body breaks up and is destroyed, the existing being is annihilated. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like uh, atheism? That you're alive, you're alive, and when you're dead, you're dead. With all of the attachments that everybody has without so much baggage about religions. 
but that's annihilationism. And then many of us actually live in nihilism. Now, nihilism means that there's no mother, there's no father, there's no monks, there's no nuns, there's no priests, there's no cops, there's no moms, there's no anything that can harm me. This is the attitude of a mafia boss or the bully. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want to do and you won't get caught. And this is labeled as long view in nihilistic. Many politicians, by the way, are nihilistic. They think that they can get away with anything. And often they do, right out in public. (laughs) So, none of those are the teachings of the Buddha. The actual teachings of the Buddha is, never mind any of that stuff, let's talk about what's real which is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. Let's find out why we're afraid of death. That basically all of these beliefs about what happens after death is because we cling to life so solidly and yet we don't even know it or appreciate it. We've lost sight of it until all of a sudden it becomes precious because we're in danger. And so this is one of the parts about Anapanasati is wake up to the enormous fortune that you've got of being alive, that here you are and that you're going to lose that. Let's make the best of it so that when it's time to go, we can say bye-bye. <laughs> can I and ask? So, yeah, go right ahead, yes. Uh, how does that relate to like what we're talking about? How does it relate to the different stages towards uh, enlightenment, like being a stream or going to the stream entry, being a once returner, non-returner. Like, what does that mean in terms of taking on uh, rebirths and reincarnation? You know? Okay. In order to look at that question, we have to actually examine some words in Pali, and that the word that we're looking at is the word jati, that is often translated as rebirth, where in fact there's nothing re about it. Jati means the word birth, but it's used in a kind of a special way in the sense of beginning or the start of anything. Okay. Um, The the start of life is the same as, as birth. And that's the kind of the way the word is used that in fact, the, the Baba or the development is actually mentally thought of uh, in a metaphor as the, uh, gestation period of pregnancy and then the start of life is with the first breath after delivery but that's merely a metaphor because that's in fact what we do every minute that the mind works like that it cogitates and then it gives birth to an idea or a thought mind moments pardon mind moments yes a mind moment and we pop in, okay? And because we pop in so often, or that I or that selfishness pops in so often, we get the idea that it's there all the time, where in fact it's not. It's only there, in fact, when we think it's there. This, the self is a self-created reality that we all live in. It's delusional. But everybody in our society has that same delusion. 
And so this is what the teachings about um, the five aggregates are, is that there is no self, there is no soul, there is no entity, there is nothing solid in the body. Those bodies are buried and burned and smoke and all of that kind of stuff, and there is no soul that pops out and, set, and looks like a ghost, like Casper the ghost. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, I know I've been at the burning hats in India. I've watched that ritual that they perform. Very interesting. Spent several days there. I was really enthralled with, with that death thing that they were doing right out there. Uh, burning is learning. Cremation is education. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and smoke gets in your eyes. <laughs> and, and so getting back to that point about the definitions of the words is that we need to look at comma and comma vipaka in the way of rather than looking at it as a law that in fact the 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 rebirth reincarnation gig and comma and the law of comma are codependent upon one another if you see it the long term and the real interesting point is that in ordinary right view the ordinary right view is no you can't get away with it and then it becomes eternalistic or semi-eternalistic when they add the little phrase at the end no matter what whatever you do there will be payback no matter what I can imagine that way back in the time when we were still in the forest and, and people uh, uh, had a, a big bully who took any and everything he wanted. He built himself a great big mansion. He ruled over that village and harmed everybody for their whole lives. And then he died a happy old man. And everybody's there kind of pissed off with comma like, well, why didn't he get his? Because he hurt us. The answer is, if you don't hurt him, who's going to? And with ordinary jhana practice and things like that, people are cementing it. That people are what? Cementing? Cementing it, yeah. They make it even more solid. Because uh -huh. they, if, if they don't, if they are not able to stay in contact with, with, within their ordinary lives, in contact in the sense of pasa or pasa, uh -huh. uh, how are they going to realize those the, the implications the, this uh, teaching of Buddha Dasa has. Um, yes, that's that's the case. So, uh, getting back to the little story, these villagers then that are all ticked off with this dude who got all the money from them and took all their wealth and then died happily, they want him punished. And so somebody, a charlatan, a priest, somebody comes by and says, oh, well, he's going to go to hell. We've got things like that. I mean, he, we, we, we've got this law of common, and it's going to go get him for that. In fact, there's a whole lot of jokes floating around about what state Hitler's in, because everybody wants him in hell. And so hell is actually an invention for other people in order for the masses to take revenge. So we want a hell. We want those kind of things for people to get it no matter what. And that's um, that requires then, well, 
what is it that's going to survive into that no matter what land of the future or the deep dark past that got me in the position that I'm in now, how does that work? And the answer to that is, let's look at it physics-wise, and we can see that, oh no, what happens instead is carried by culture, is carried by the, uh, uh, the common knowledge and the teachings that we get from our parents. That's how it's passed down. And here we are reborn generation after generation of people who are in pain, in misery, and take it out on each other. How can you not see that? I mean, this, this is so astonishing for me that this, that they, they are Ajans and Bhikkhus and whatever, and and it's just this this whole cultural stuff gets gets uh, mm -hmm. samsarically well, progressed and progressed and progressed and progressed. Well, that you know, that's the reason that you could say that the uh, the Buddha used. The second better is sila bhatta paramasa, our attachments to the, all things that we've been told. Okay, that we come in this world is fairly empty, but a whole lot of stuff gets written all over us. When we're very, very young, so young that we don't even really uh, realize that we've got a choice about whether we're going to believe it. We just take it in. This is why kids that are raised in a particular church are the ones who are going to defend that church into their old age. Very rarely do adults join a new church and then stay very long. After a couple of years, they're out of there. But we make a lot of decisions when we're, when we're kids, and a lot of that decisions have to do with when and where and why and how to be unhappy. And we get a whole lot of reasons to be unhappy. <laughs> and so this is what we're doing is recognizing that stuff and starting to change it one moment at a time. That's the plan, Stan. However, if we already have a belief in rebirth and reincarnation of something that is fixed, remember the soul thing is so strong that it, you know, it's, it's, um, subject to superior forces like the law of karma and its uh, gods and stuff like that. But uh, generally, it's substantially strong. And not only that, but it's somehow unique so that the common machine can keep track of who did what with this particular soul. And so the common machine's got to be a really, really high quality, complex, maybe um, uh, a quantum computer of some kind. So anyway, this soul then, that's so substantial, can't change. So there are many millions of people in Thailand that are trapped in the belief of, oh, why should I meditate? I'm not going to be able to change. The best thing that I can do is make some merit and get a little bit better so that I can handle the next life a little easier. To where the real way of looking at it is, hey, you're in paradise right now. This is your bloody chance. You may not get another chance. <laughs> You may not get another chance. This may be the only life that you ever get. Who knows? So let's take advantage of this one. 
rather than postponing it because I've got too many carts to push and too many bicycles to ride and too many um, uh, dog poops to sweep up and all that kind of stuff that you see out in ordinary life. And we get attached to that kind of stuff. What would be a better way to say responsibility? Yeah, we get we feel responsible in the sense of we feel um, ownership and control is actually the issue that we can look at. Yeah, that responsibility means if I own it, I've got to carry it around and protect it. And that for it gives me a job to do. My job is Heavy. to take care of it. Or another way of saying it, it owns me. I'm the slave to all of those objects. That's especially easy to see with a house. Clean my toilet, <laughs> flush my commode, wash I, my dishes, sweep my floors. <laughs> and not, that, not that I have to carry, not even that I have to carry around a soul, now I have to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so that's the things that we care for and care about then is what causes us the dukkha. That it is not dispensed or delivered by a comma machine. Now, here's the, there's a whole lot of stuff in the suttas about uh, comma, and I've already talked about it in the sense of uh, wrong view, right view, ordinary right view, and noble right view. The noble right view is viewing and looking and being in the present moment in order to change. And this fixed soul already has the idea that it's hard to change. It's slow to change. I've been doing this for centuries now, man. Give me a break. This is hard work to change. And we kind of get that attitude when we walk into meditation and people will wind up 30, 40 years and, you know, with a very, very strong practice in the sense of spending their lives in a meditation center or something like that. And they're not getting anything out of it. They still are looking for something. They never really finally found out that they can stop looking and just enjoy so through, what we've already got. Yes, go ahead. wrong psychology... Uh, people are not able to even access the, let's say, mind-sweeping uh, faculties of uh, uh, noble Buddhism because they are framing themselves to, yeah, to, to failure. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And in that way of the failures is, is that all of the parents, they do that even in Buddhism. Let's talk about Buddhism, but Christianity has their own Ten Commandments and things like that. But in Buddhism, at every temple, on every temple day, they will always have everybody go through the, the precepts. And then they make sure that the kids understand this in the light of the comma of you do um, bad things. Here's the list of the bad things. Do they do the five precepts, the eight or the ten? Well, uh, the starting point for everyone is back to five precepts. But the whole point of the way that the Buddha talks about these things is that they're not precepts, but just because of the reference, we'll call them the, the noble precepts. Is Training rules. 
Right. Well, the training rules actually are the precepts that are given to children to help them train to be able to manage in this society, whatever society that they're in. Because if you don't abide by certain kind of rules, if you go raping and killing and stabbing and taking and all of that kind of stuff, you better be very, very good at it (laughs) or you'll get caught. And the fact is, is that wise people and smart people generally don't do that kind of stuff because they know how dangerous it is. It's the stupid people that think that they can get away with it. That's why the prisons are so full of stupid people. Because <laughs> they that's, thought they'd get an, away with it. That's an interesting way to explain it because most people, I would say, out of my experience, would say a human being wouldn't do this from the from the get-go because we're inherently great. Can you say something to that? Uh, you're dropping out. Can you repeat it? Uh, from my experience, most people, at least the people I know or the society views uh, <clears throat> I'm familiar with, people would say uh, from the get-go, humans either are good or are bad. And depending on how people uh, think about that, they would say, okay, you have to have the rules because people are inherently not so good, so you have to We're all to a bunch of animals. Them. Humans are probably or one of the worst people, <laughs> Yeah, or people think people are inherently good, so uh, there has to be something happening in, in certain ages to, to make you such a bad person that you have to be restrained. So, when you say you in, but uh, the good and bad, uh, up and down, back and forth is inherent everywhere. It's just a fact. But within the human context is, is that at the bottom basic level, we are all afraid. We are always in the possibility of being in danger. We got to to hide. We got to run. We got to fight. And that's part of the nature of the human being. Only we're very much better at it than the apes. But other than that ability to be very good at being bad, <laughs> and the being bad is is that we harm people when we're trying to protect ourselves because we do it so ignorantly. And so, and so that's the basis and the foundation, uh, the very core that has brought us the society with all of the hundreds of thousands of rules and rituals and all of that kind of stuff that we have to live with now. Wow, it takes years to train a human being to fit into this society. It's so complicated. And the thing that I find amazing is is that you can take the, uh, you know, the phrase is take a country or you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. I see that on a regular basis here in Thailand that Westerners just don't know how to be Thai. They don't know how to fit in. They're still Westerners with a Western mentality and they keep being confused about what's going on around them because they don't understand the Thai mentality. (laughs) So anyway, back to this idea of this fixed object, this soul, this thing that's alive is actually understood in a way 
but it surrounds us. Any place and every place that we go, there we are, we're alive. And, and in fact, this is the beginning of the understanding of air and breath. We have this thing that, that's a remnant of this called atmosphere. That atmos is the anatta or the uh, atta, atmos in the Greek. So um, there's a difference between atom, A-T-O-M or atom versus A-T-M-O, which is this atmos. And that that's the breath of life. It's the spirit. It's the atmosphere. This is the way that ancient ancients thought because they didn't have all of the science that we put in together to understand oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide and all of that kind of stuff. We didn't have that back then. But so what they understood was the breath of life, that it's life-giving and it's everywhere. And this is what was the beginning of a god because God is everywhere. It's all over the place. This is what Jesus meant by the word Abba, the about, the above, the everything that's around us kind of uh, godliness that we breathe in and breathe out God, that the emptiness inside is God-shaped because God is like a uh, (laughs) a gas, I guess, (laughs) Uh, like the atmosphere. So, in that regard, then, putting a conscious livingness to that and calling it God and giving it a name and all of that kind of stuff, the Buddha says, no, there's not even that. That there is no Atta or Atmos. That this is something real here, this air that we're breathing in. There's nothing magical about it. It's not a God. It's not life-giving in, in the sense of it's intention, intentionally keeping us alive. It's that that's the way that the body chemistry works. It developed over a long period of time to work like that. And so... Um, and by the way, we're not even as good as breathers as some of the other animals like elephants and <laughs> rhinos. I mean, they've got really big, heavy lungs. They know how to do it. Um, uh, big baboons, gorillas. So this Atmos, then you hear the name of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Mahaata, the great soul. So there is actually a major mistranslation here that the word anatta in the Pali does not mean no self, it means no physical fixed object, no soul. Now, in modern times, they want the soul to be gaseous in form or something like that, or maybe it's not... um, it, it has no mass and, and has no energy and it has no weight or anything like that, but it still exists and it's unique and identifiable. It's got like a 20 digit number written on it or something like that so that it can be identified in case of an atomic bomb when everybody goes off at once. How are you going to know who to hook what comma to? <laughs> And so um, when we look at it from the perspective of this, in the reality of the situation, the whole concept doesn't make sense other than to point out that we feel bad 
about being dead. We don't want to do it. We cling to things, and one of the things that we cling to most is life itself, and we do so without even noticing it. That we go around, in fact, being afraid of a lot of stuff, and we're not even noticing that the fear is one of our primary feelings, and it's also the primary driver. It's the motivating factor. Why do I write that email to the boss? Because I'm lying. I'm afraid of him. But it's right. the self-preservation instinct of the organism. It's not the self-preservation instinct of something that is called self or me or mine. And mm -hmm. Exactly. It's that self-preservation mechanism that operates as fear. And that's what creates the self. But it's just a state or a condition that we pass in and out of. And so going back to that statement about what's the distinction between rebirth and reincarnation it's specified in a sutta number 38. Uh, Sati, son of a fisherman, is the star of the show. It's the Mahatanha Bhavanga Sutta, I think. And in there, the Buddha uh, talks about consciousness. Now, uh, Sati thought that consciousness was that which roamed here and there experiencing the results of good and bad actions from the past. And the, the monks tried to dissuade him from that. And so they brought, and, uh, they, they brought the story to the Buddha and told him the story. And he says, go get Sati. And so they told him the, Buddha, the story again and then asked Sati to come. And then the, the next time the story is told again and Sati has to say it. And this is actually then where the Buddha says uh, that he's, he's a silly man. He is stupid, that he doesn't understand the teachings of the Buddha at all. And then the Buddha makes the star statement. And that star statement is, is that consciousness is dependent. It's just not there all the time off into the next thing that you would have like a consciousness of a soul. I mean, what's the primary quality of this soul, by the way, is, is that it's conscious. Why? Well, the soul gets tossed into heaven or hell, right? Well, what what does difference does it make to the to the soul whether he's in heaven or hell if he's dead and don't know? I mean, I'd be quite uh, happy to spend the rest of eternity in hell as long as I don't know. <laughs> weird concepts <laughs> well that's the whole point of it though think about it that the soul is conscious so if it's in hell it knows it's in hell and it's got to feel like this is hell <laughs> and vice versa so if the soul then is out of control because it's placed into these environments by the karma machine. And that's how it kind of feels that it's fate or destiny that I wind up being in the same situation over and over and over again, not recognizing that we're creating the patterns that create that situation right in the here now, that it's not the results of old, bad, long ago actions. And the Buddha teaches, let's be here now. Let's look at our consciousness and what we're conscious of right now. And be alive right now. That let's not deal with the past, things that are long ago and far away. 
And yet many people, they love, they thirst, they hunt, they want to have these past life experiences because they really, really want to know for sure that they're not going to die. Except they are. So in the application of this distinction between reincarnation and rebirth is, is that reincarnation has this fixed soul, soul identifiable, fixed, and yet subject to its environment, and it knows it. It's conscious. Luciato and Brahmali even mentioned Itapachayata, you know. <laughs> Say that again, you're breaking up just a bit. Uh, Suchato and Brahmali even mentioned Itapachayata and explained very, very briefly what it means. Oh, I'm not familiar That's, right now with that polyphrase. Can you uh, give it in English? Uh, I know, I know that uh, Bhikkhu uh, Bodhadasa uh, uses uh, in 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 his little pamphlets Ita um, Pachayata as let's say the the what's this in English? Um, some something like uh, the, the same thing that is for the Christians a God that is omniscient, uh, uh, omnipresent, and almighty. Oh yes, okay. So you're That's I the think law. you're using the word uh, idiopapajayata. Is that it? Right, right, right. Okay. Sorry about that. I had to kind of figure that out. Idiopapajayata is in fact it has those characteristics. And let's give the example of gravity itself. Gravity has been a mystery. It's still a mystery. They still haven't figured it out, but they're on their way. But in the old days, nobody had any idea about this gravity, except that one thing that's for sure, that anybody who slips is going to fall. It's going to be there every time. It knows. It's omniscient. Gravity is omniscient. It's always there. And it's all powerful. I mean, look how much work humans have to do just to, to fight gravity. Almost everything that humans do is fighting gravity. That in fact, gravity is so deep that that's where the word grave comes from, which means both digging a hole and putting a body in a grave and also the grave in the sense of very slow and lethargic. Like in music, very slow stuff. Um, so gravity has those three qualities, and that's not the only thing it does, but it's always there. It is all powerful. And it knows everything. You're not going to slip and fall and float up into the air because gravity forgot to look. <laughs> And Ityapapajayata then can be seen as reality itself. Down to the microscopic level, there are basic laws of physics. And when we think that we can break the laws of physics and get away with it, guess what? We can't. But the laws of nature, the laws of physics are much more powerful. And the only thing that's more powerful than, than the actual laws of physics is delusion. It's funny how delusion mm. persists right in the face of reality. 
There we go. All right. So if consciousness now is dependent and comes and goes and comes and goes, then it would be useful for us to start paying attention to when consciousness is there. When do you know that you know that you're there? That's what the property of sati is all about is wake up. Let's be here now. Let's have some consciousness going on rather than in that dull state of thought process that we often get into. You must be awake and aware and conscious. So this is the property that we're actually dealing with. But the problem with many of the meditators that have the belief in rebirth, especially if it's a fuzzy belief that they don't know the difference between rebirth and reincarnation, they are very, very slow to start practicing correctly because they've got several basic foundational mistakes or delusions that prevent them from practicing correctly. One of them is as though, oh, I've got a soul, I've got a destiny, I'm fixed, I can't change everything, I'm subject to the past. Then with that, how can I get anywhere with meditation? I got to work really hard. Greed, so ill will, and delusion are circling around each other, right? Right, exactly. And so I've even had one student, a Westerner, by the way, who said was, oh, well, my life is pretty good right now, and I don't think that I need to worry too much about this particular life, but, the, but I do see that there is enough dukkha in this life that I have to do that life after life after life after life. Then, because I believe in rebirth, I'll eventually get around to doing something about it. <laughs> And this is a guy, by the way, he was on, this guy that I'm talking about right now was on that uh, um, listserv. On what? Us, on the listserv or the, the Yahoo uh, group that we had so many years ago. I forgot what it was. But in any case, the, um, uh, the whole idea then is, is that relax if you relax enough, it's a pretty good teaching. Everything's already been taken care of. You've got a destiny here, man. Everything's going to be okay. Just sit back and relax. That's a pretty good attitude, but most people don't get that because they they still see that there's trouble afoot and they want to know why. And so we start looking for first causes, original causes and things like that so that we can justify the misery that we've got to put up with now. Do you know the simile of the ant and the grasshopper? Uh, no, go ahead. The ant is is uh, working. Oh, that's right. The, the ant throughout the year he's got all the grub. Right, that's the that's one of the stories that they tell in order to make all of us little kids ants. Man, I'm going to be exactly. a grasshopper. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the reason why people are always reframing uh, what you're teaching into that doesn't work. I am confused. I don't know how to how to think about this. And this is why why I always I'm so astounded how even even now after I mean I started uh, uh, practicing now in in February 22 with uh, the super mundane, and it took me so long to weaken this this thinking 
at least so much that I could penetrate through insights that, that made me practice correctly, you know, because the whole the whole body is cramping up. It's it's incredible how 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 deep this is. And oh, it's quite credible. You saw it all happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's look at uh, consciousness and its relationship to rebirth and reincarnation. That if, in fact, consciousness is dependently arising and it arises in this moment, that the thing that affects this uh, uh, consciousness that we have is perception. That consciousness has perception in order to make sense out of it. And basically what that means is that we tell ourselves a little story to make sense out of what's coming in in consciousness. So if, if the consciousness then is dependent about what's happening right now, plus the past, then how fast, how long into the past does it go is irrelevant because we're going to be getting out of the past and starting to live in this present moment. So whether rebirth actually exists or not is irrelevant. The problem with it is, is that it prevents many people from practicing because they've got the wrong attitude that they can't get anywhere much because all of this stuff is really hard work. And so we start exactly. off with that idea that, oh, not only do I have 50 years of a bunch of crap to carry around, I've been around for so many lives. I mean, I'm carrying around 100,000 years of crap. <laughs> How can I Eons, eons, eons. Eons, and oh, I'm so messed up. <laughs> not a hope or prayer for me. No chance. And a lot of us feel that defeated attitude, but that's the kind of ideas that we have that support the feeling of being victimized by our environment. And that's really what's going on is that we feel victimized by our environment because we're not, you know, coming out of that attitude of being victimized by the environment that we're in. So, it's not really consciousness then that determines the heaven or the hell. It's what we make of whatever we are in right now. And if we mix a bunch of hell with it, we're going to come up with a bunch of hell. So at the top layer, everybody that's into reincarnation, they don't have much of a chance of being on the spiritual path other than going and praying at the temple and doing some puja and giving some flowers and uh, performing ceremonies, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism. This is the mass majority all over the world, including Western Buddhism. They romanticize it and um, uh, commercialize it and ceremonialize it, but they don't actually take it. That That's actually a, a Goenka story I remember. And that is, is that an old woman in India was very poor and she really needed some help because she was sick. And finally she got enough money to take to the Ayurvedic doctor and she was able to manage up the steps and he took a look at her and diagnosed her and says, oh, you need this ingredient 
go downstairs to the pharmacy and they wrote to Chet and she went down there and with the little money that she paid, she had, she bought the medicine and some flowers, some incense, a candle and a photograph of the doctor upstairs. She takes it home, sets up an altar, puts the picture of the doctor, puts the candle, puts the incense, and puts the medicine all up on the altar. And then she sits down and, oh, thank you, dear doctor. I am so happy that you have cured me. Oh, I really appreciate this medicine. It fits really nicely on my shelf. (laughs) Jesus. She doesn't take the medicine. She worships it instead. And this is exactly what's happened to Anapanasati, etc. It's been worshipped instead of applied. Well, it sounds so. It sounds so easy. That's the, that's the thing, and it is easy. The 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 the, the difficult thing for people is to 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 yeah to experience this for themselves, so they can they can. Get the confidence. This is they, they don't have the confidence to begin with. So how do they develop uh, confidence if nobody is there who explains right. them exactly. how to get it? That in fact, if you practice anapanasati the way that most people would, with let us say a Goenka retreat, and Goenka says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Except that when we say never mind, that means that we've woken up to the fact that the mind has wandered away from the breath. Oh, bad mind. I thought I, you were better than this. And so we start being critical of ourselves. That very first time we recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath, we punish ourselves and then we, we continue to do that over and over and over again. We're never satisfied with our progress. Because yeah. progress, actual progress, is waking up and seeing what you're doing. And yet we wake up, see what we're doing, and punish ourselves for it. Ah, so this idea of you're stuck in it is easy to understand from the, uh, from the reincarnation point of view. Because every time I take a look, all I find is crap. Every time I look, all I find is the old crap. Yes, that's right. But now what we're going to do when we find that old crap is change it. Take it out. Take the garbage out. Clean house. <laughs> Put a little but joy. But if you do that, you can't be in misery anymore. And it's not allowed. It's not allowed. Ah, there's rules against being happy. That's exactly (laughs) right. You have not done enough work. You're not successful or satisfied enough. You cannot be happy. (laughs) Oh, God. You can't do it. It's against the rules. What rules? Oh, the ones you made up inside your own head. (laughs) Those are the rules. (laughs) And when we recognize that we made that rule up, we can change that rule. And say, oh, no. Every time I find myself screwing up, I can say, hot dog, I caught it again. Wow, I'm getting pretty good at finding all that crap. One little cow pie at a time. All I have to do is step out of the way. And so we become vigilant in watching what's going on. But we do it kind of naturally. We kind of naturally wake up and start being on guard 
from a state from a point of safety and security. Yeah, we've got this wire. We can see that stuff. So then this point between the reincarnation and rebirth is, is that in the rebirth itself, the, the belief that developed centuries after the Buddha was is that it's a kind of a stepping stone to step down from the belief in reincarnation because if it is not your consciousness that is actually being reborn, then whatever it is that's being reborn is probably not you anyway. That something or sometime that in fact you will leave your legacy, it's going to vibrate. I mean, your fact existence is going to vibrate right through uh, the planet Earth. But everybody does, and so there's a whole lot of people having a whole lot of effect upon things. But you will vibrate. People will remember you for a while. Things will reverberate. But it's not you. But why force it? Why force it in an ignorant way? This is this is what I mean. It, it comes every time to the same to the same conclusion in my mind. It's like there are the ones that are trying to force people through rules to do the the in in quotes the right thing. But if you teach people the correct teaching, compassion and meta and all this stuff and taking all care the good of stuff, the environment the good emerges automatically. Yes, but we don't teach that to our children very much. I remember when I was a really, really young kid about the age of three in nursery school at church or Sunday school, that we would sing a song, Yes, Jesus Loves Me. And that's possibly the only time that those kids in that church once a week could actually feel loved is when we're singing the song that Jesus loves me until you read the part about, oh, the reason I know Jesus loves me is because the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and you say, okay, well, that's not much love if it's in a book. Backlash and collateral then. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we are not raised to be self-sufficient. We're not raised to be on top of our game and feeling that way. And when we fall down, we pick ourselves up. I had a friend one time who was quite amazing. He and I were spiritual buddies for a while. And he had a, a, a young boy, a young child. And his advice for his child all the time was, slow down. Take your time. You'll get it right. Enjoy what you're doing. This, I mean, this guy really knew how to tell what a, a kid how to how to do it because most of the time we get frustrated with the child and say hurry up i'm busy now show me what you got and let me go but to take but to tell the child you got all the time you need enjoy what you're doing and i imagine that that kid probably winds up being a, a, a noted scientist some days who knows hmm. uh so it's in our early childhood that we're given so much junk that it's so powerful. All of the social stuff that it picks up, it's probably much, much heavier duty and much more weighty than what happened in the past lifetime. That about the best thing that the past lifetime can do for you is to choose your moment and your place of birth. 
and the people involved with it. And after that, the common machine has kind of lost a lot of what the power is really going to be is a whole lot of right nows happening and piling up on us as kids, and we don't have the ability to handle it correctly, no wisdom. And so we take on these rules like the precepts. We teach our kids the rules because basically the right way to say it is they're too stupid, they're too ignorant, they're not capable, they don't have the wisdom to see that those things are harmful and to be avoided. That we're impressionable when we're children. We don't have any wisdom at all. Wisdom comes from experience and experience requires looking and being there, being conscious, watching what's going on. And we've eventually come to the point that I wouldn't dare go kill somebody because look how much work it is trying to get away with it. It's just not worth the effort. And I don't really care any, but anything about anybody enough to go harm them like that. And so that's, you know, just basic wisdom right there. I'm not going to go harm anybody. It's too much work. I'm not going to steal anything. That's too much work. And I've got that's a even, that's even the, the that's even the lowest the lowest way to look at it. Because if you if you <clears throat> like look at things like Family Lab or something from Scandinavia, I don't know if, if you know that like Jasper Jewel and people like that or uh, uh, Andre Stern uh, and people like that uh, who grew up completely free and could could really uh, go through their childhood in, in a way that wasn't that uh, bound to rules and things like that. People right. develop automatically yeah. in the right way. That's the whole point of the Dalai Lama is, is that let's give a kid a chance by having a whole bunch of senior monks around him, old happy men. Okay, that's that's the Tibetan system. Is that we we can we can raise some really high quality people, folks, <laughs> because we've got wise people that are raising the kids, and and um, that's actually uh, a story that goes on and on over the centuries that the uh, the Buddhist temples have been orphanages. And often the schools and the temples are the homes for the kids who even have their parents still alive, but they send the kids to the temple for their education. Not just the reading and writing and arithmetic, but how to live a happy life. And so um, getting back to that point about the um, rebirth and reincarnation is, is that if we can even just cling to, okay, if I do a bad deed and I don't get uh, slammed for it in this life, then whoever gets uh, that comma, that's his problem, not mine. And we sort of begin to let go of all the stuff that we've ever done. So in fact, uh, that middle position of re or rebirth is not a bad place to be if it gives us the idea that we still have to do something now. To start practicing like this is important. That this dukkha is actually, you know, the thing that's been weighing me down. Why not just remove all of that problem and live a happy, comfortable life 
and not worry about how many of them I'm going to get. Then, in fact, we'll eventually grow tired of being alive. Had enough of it. That's why people can often choose their time of death. So sometimes death is going to happen while people are still clinging to it. And sometimes people know when to let go. And so that's the easy way out. Take it easy on yourself. You're going to die. Enjoy it. Be ready for it. Practice well. Know when you go to sleep. Know when you lose your consciousness. Because someday you're going to lose it. And <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen after that. And so uh, that middle ground of reincarnation or rebirth is not necessarily a bad place to be. But in the Pali, it's always translated that way. And the actual re- word of jati means that something is happening and gets born right now. So you probably heard the story that uh, uh, the Sotapan had ha- has it at best seven lives, right? Have you heard that? Veda, could you could you repeat that again? Yeah, that the Sotapan has seven lives to live. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Till okay. he till he finally now, gets it. Now the ordinary belief system, the ordinary way of looking at that is, is that yes, he has only seven lifetimes left. And that means that he actually has a clear end point now. Okay, so maybe this is our last life. And so we can see a definite end point. But and that's the ordinary way of looking at it. The noble way of looking at it is, is that the soda pine is going to be quick enough that he's only going to be yelling about seven times in a row before he stops. He'll get into an argument and he'll argue for a little while and then he'll break up and stop. And then later, it's down to only two or three exchanges, and then he'll stop, or she'll stop. And then we get down to the point to where we only say one word, out, one outburst, something like, ouch, when we get a, a, a stub toe, or get shot by an arrow, or something like that. Just one word comes out. And then we get to the point that it doesn't matter what happens to us or how bad we feel immediately, we don't let it out. This is the non-returner. The anagami is the one who does not let it out. To where the uh, uh, sotagami is the one who will yell, ouch, but he won't stay on it. He'll get over it. So this is another way of looking at it. Rather than thinking about it in lives and lives, we can think about it in this life. This ouch. <laughs> why? This why it seems to be? Why there seems to be such a such a low, low emphasis on uh, like a sufficient diagnostic? I don't, I don't get it because Buddhism is so advanced. Why? Why is there such a lack of of I mean, if you if you conduct a, a a talk with let's say a group of ten uh, students and you 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 put the framework right, 
that you're able as as a as a good teacher to build a connection to those students and really get to know them and really understand what they need and so on. And I mean, even in the in the Tibetan way with all this guru stuff and so on, I mean, there is this superficial conveyance of, yeah, we, we have this. But if mm -hmm. you look at the results and if you look at what they, what they are actually doing, it's... it's well, we've got two strikes against us. I don't why us. they act like children. Well, no, we've got two strikes against us, you see. One strike against us is, is that we're not supposed to be super successful, but that happens only rarely. They still uh, make into a star a little kid because he can do some math. Or another one yeah. who can play the piano very well. Really little children, they call them prodigies, right? And we applaud them. We want, you know, uh, idiots, savants, all of these kind of folks. Um, there is that dynamic. Yeah, we, we, we lionize them, but mostly and by and large, everybody else is taught that you, um, they actually use the word, you're special, you're unique. Okay, but yeah. the way that it's said with a pleading voice, it actually teaches the child uh, to fit in. That you're special, you're unique. Now, shut up and stop being unique and fit in and do what you're told to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, so it, it's so contradictive. It, 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 it rips people apart, not even in the, in the micro sense for themselves, but also in, in, the, in, in societal wise. You know? I mean, it's just who, who, who is able to withstand so much contradictive forces? So this is the reason why many people, even if they're practicing correctly, but never mind if they're not practicing correctly, will quit practicing meditation is because they see it as hard. Oh, it's too much. Oh, I can't do it. And what they're basically doing is just repeating the same cycle of not liking themselves when they catch themselves not liking themselves. I mean, <laughs> how hilarious is that? <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> yeah. All right, and we're taught to do that. We're taught to get better. We're taught to improve. We're taught to be perfect, and we're not. Everybody is a mess, and very few people are willing to relish in it. Yeah, I'm a mess. Isn't that marvelous? I don't have to live up to anybody's standards. Sorry, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> I just enjoy, and we can start to take that attitude when we become winners because we are actually in charge of our own lives. So if we can come to that, it doesn't matter whether we believe in rebirth and reincarnation or not. That in fact, it's, ir it's irrelevant. The only time that rebirth and reincarnation are relevant is when we demand that they are relevant. And then we use them as obstacles to build a fortress around ourselves to, to prevent ourselves from being able to change. Yay. There's the rules, you know, you got to keep the rules. If you don't, That's the fun. common machine is going to come after you. All right. Now, let's look at it from the way that it's talked about in the suttas, especially that sutta number 57, the dog duty aesthetic that I was mentioning, is, is that... Mm -hmm. The, the Buddha talks about it in the sense that, yes, there is good actions that give good results, and there are bad actions that give bad results. 
But that is completely different than the statement of, yes, there are good results from good behavior, and there is bad behavior that will give the bad results no matter what. You're going to get your due. Okay, that no matter what part is a belief system because we don't know. It's fuzzy. Sometimes we get away with it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think we got away with it, and then later we get caught. Sometimes we get impermanence um, is permanent. Exactly. That sometimes we get away with it, and then years later we remorse and regret over it. So we never did get away with it. We caught ourselves eventually, and now every time we think about it, we feel bad. So again and again. Uh, and what we need to do is to accept ourselves for how we are and enjoy and relish the life that we have right now. And that's very, very hard to do when we are trained to be victims, not winners in our lives. But now we're going to add rebirth and reincarnation to the mix. And, and now it gets really super heavy. And that, oh, I can't change my mind because my comma machine says I can't change my mind. But I am stuck. I am bound. This is destiny. This is providence. Uh, Eric Byrne called it a life script. If we don't know we have a life script, then we are actually doomed to live out that life script. You've heard all the world's a stage and everyone is a player. Shakespeare. Except he forgot to mention that we're all reading a script. What script are we reading? The one that we created and invented in childhood. And the name of the book is me. And we stand on stage and read our book. And when we begin to recognize that that's what we're doing, we can stop doing it and, and just enjoy the show. We don't have to well, be an Shakespeare. Shakespeare is the repetition of the same human condition theme. That's why why uh, so many actors and authors and so on consider it uh, um, something that will last throughout all human history because the the right. human condition that, that, that is displayed right. in Shakespeare's pieces isn't to overcome. You could say that the Shakespeare plays is nothing but 16th century or 15th century psychotherapy <laughs> with Hamlet. If people would, if people would, would draw the uh -huh. right conclusions out of it, that's the, that's the thing. Yes, that. But one, they don't. They just mm -hmm. indulge in it. So look at, at uh, um, look at Hamlet for a moment. To be or not to be. That's actually now wrestling with death, but he did that on stage as a young man with a poison sword. But we all kind of have a poison sword while we're standing on stage, and eventually we'll have to figure out are we going to use that poison sword on ourselves or not. To be or not to be is the ultimate question. These are the high fetters that are called Rupa Raga and A Rupa Raga. The question is can you die happily? Because you're going to do it one way or the other. Why have a tussle? If we're going to go, am I going to stay? Just let it go and figure out when it happens. Everything's going to be okay. So um, back to that point, we've actually covered only two of the kinds of comma. 
and that is good results come from good actions and bad results or dark results from dark actions. But the Buddha says that that's not the, the prominent kind. Most actions are mixed, that we have mixed motives, that a cloud, all clouds have a silver lining you've heard, okay? Uh, in the military, they call it collateral damage. Um, uh, we also can call it unintended consequences, but it's more basic than that. It has just to do with attitude. So when the penalty flag goes off on the play, half the crowd roars in delight because they like that penalty flag, and the other half of the crowd uh, roars in anger because they don't like it. Now, was that a good or a bad throw? Well, that's not even the point. The crowd's going to tell you whether it's good or bad or not. You have to have a camera to figure out, was it a correct throw of the flag? But nobody's interested in whether it was correct or not. They want it to be so, my way. Uh-huh. And so, that, so in that regard, comma is mixed. There is rarely a good action that's actually good in all cases. Philanthropy like the Red Cross is a really clear example of mixed comma. Churches, mixed comma. Got some good, got some bad. Politics, mixed comma. Everything's mixed. Guess what? So are we. Sometimes we feel good. Sometimes we feel bad. Sometimes we feel a nut. Sometimes we don't. So we're all a mixture of good and bad. And that's what gives us a lot of our motivations. Is to avoid the fear of getting it wrong, because sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. So. There is actually now a fourth kind of comma that there is really the teaching of the Buddha, and that is the kind of comma that is neither bright nor dark, that has neither bright nor dark results. And some example of that is, is that if you are already happy and you've got a mind that's noble and pure and you don't want anything, you're not going to go kill anybody. You're already in a really good state. If you're in a really, really good state, then all you've got is really good states to give to people. And so we don't need precepts or rules or whatnot like that. All we really need is that one guiding point of Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. That's the wisdom is always look to see is this next word that I'm about to say, is that Dukkha or is it not? Is it empty? It's applicable ability. Uh-huh. And that's, that's where we develop wisdom is by <coughs> choosing which topic to talk about. Then, in fact, this is one of the beauties about the Dhamma is that the Dhamma is almost always wholesome. It's really hard actually to actually talk about the Dhamma and start talking in unwholesome ways, like naming names. <laughs> and and uh, uh, what what is that kick that they do? But anyway, um, that's not that's not Dhamma, that's selfishness. But when we're actually just talking about how things really are, that uh, we're there. So the person will start out in, in a solid belief system of reincarnation, and then that gets softened into uh, rebirth of, oh, yeah, well, so what? It's, it, there is rebirth, but it's not me. I've got to get 
me out of the life I'm living now, and then who cares what happens in the next lives? Stop caring already <laughs> about this one, and you won't have to care about the next one, whether it actually exists or not. Now, most people are actually in buried in deep into the question of does rebirth or reincarnation actually exist? The answer is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because we don't know. It's like, does God exist? I don't know. The kind of God that Christians have, no, probably not. But who knows? Maybe. And then you can take it as a playful thing. Yeah, then it's a playful thing and you can uh, play with it. Um, So there's there's various things that you can do. But the better way of doing it is, is getting the mind straightened out right now and not be reborn right now in this moment into Dukkha and let the far future take care of itself. That's the real teaching of the Buddha is the Dukkha Dukkha Naroda is right here right now. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the far flung future. But remember that that teaching about the precepts is actually in a grown up way, the same thing as the adults teaching children. All of these laws, rules and regulations are often done by religions and governments and big business and educational systems that lay down the laws of how you're supposed to behave even as an adult. You're supposed to buy this. You're supposed to buy that. You're supposed to have this kind of job. You're supposed to do this, have that religion, vote this way, be angry at that politician, all of these rules. And often we go around looking for what's the next rule I'm supposed to follow, daddy. And so we kind of live our lives. That's why the mind, that's why the mind always um, dissociates the the factors that are wholesome that's why that's why you you don't remember to put uh, the 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 right noble information into the mix because you're you're so conditioned to to do it the other way around to make it unwholesome mm-hmm. that's why that's why it's so so in in quotes hard in the beginning to uh, <laughs> to remember the right, the right parts of the Noble Eightfold Path together. Yes, exactly. So in that fourth kind of comma, it's neither dark nor bright. And bright comma means making merit or doing things, planning in advance, uh, oh, investing money into the stock market, all kinds of things that we do for future gain. And so we kind of stop doing that kind of stuff and start living for what benefit are we getting out of this moment? Like several times, many times, in fact, I probably said the reason that we do these video calls is because I really like them. <laughs> I mean, I get, I really enjoy talking to the students. Keeps my mind focused on the Dhamma. And so that's the kind of way to look at it is, is that I'm not trying to build an empire, just have some friends. Aha moment addicted, yeah. Uh-huh. So if we can start living our lives as if we're getting the value out of our actions that we're taking right now, and we don't have to hope for any future reward from the actions that we're taking right now, then that means that we're not looking for bright results from this particular action that we're doing right now. 
And so our lives begin to get into this neither bright nor dark mentality, which is also non-judgmental. We're not judging exactly. the future based upon the present actions that we're taking. That we kind of let the paradise be a paradise even in the future. Just leave it alone. And so we don't make judgments about what action that I'm taking right now and what effects it's going to have in the future, but rather gain the benefit right now. So no beating need for somebody cynicism. right, beating somebody up on the street and robbing them of their money while I'm actually performing that robbery is not at all satisfying, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> Especially if he fights back. Okay, and this in is that what people, moment, this is what people doing. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about am I going to get caught uh, later because of what I've done now. It's how do I feel now about what I'm doing? Now, this is the kind of comma, this kind of action as looking at what we're doing right now brings about a whole lot less action that almost always we're reacting to and acting in dukkha or in dark spaces. And then we're operating in bright spaces, wanting things and trying to get stuff. And when we stop doing all of that, we begin to not do quite so much anymore. And so this is the action that brings the end of action. It's sort of like uh, riding around in a big truck, carrying a big camper van, towing it from behind and the gas mileage is terrible and then you recognize oh I can go and dis disassociate I can unhook that camper van and then I get a whole lot easier mileage the truck runs a whole lot better if it's not towing that great big load and so we can think of the mind like that that the, the mind is really peppy it's really a magnificent roaring powerful machine it's just been weighted down with all this mud and gunk and garbage that we carry around. And when we can see that, every time that muck and garbage comes up, we can say, ah, out of here, unhook right now. Let me have this moment that's free and clean. And in that regard, now that's the action that brings the end of action. So that we don't wind up doing so much anymore because we're already satisfied. Look at all the things that you do because you're dissatisfied with something or another. I mean, we go to work in the morning dissatisfied. We dress ourselves dissatisfied. We often eat our food in a great big hurry because we're dissatisfied that I have to stop to eat because I want to do that game or do that work or something. Hurry so up, we're we late. <laughs> Yes, some insight, exactly. We have to start looking at all of these things that are dissatisfying to us so that we can now make a choice. But that's the real point about the belief in rebirth and reincarnation is not the real issue. The real issue is personality view. And the question of personality view is what is your personality? The answer is, is that for everyone, the same answer is, is that you're not fixed. You're not a stable thing. You're not definable. You are a moving target. And the less you carry around, the quicker you can move around. 
And so you become even less of a self because really what manufactures and makes up the self is all the baggage that we're carrying. That's who I am is my own crap. <laughs> and when I'm not carrying around my own crap, I've got a lot of freedom in movement. And then there's not much self there. Because every time a self comes up, let's move along. Nothing to see here, folks. Let's just move along. <laughs> And so this is the actual comma that brings an end to the comma. And this is why we need to start looking at, are these actions that we're doing, are they, are, is this likely to be um, suffering or not suffering right now? If I'm yelling at my wife right now, I'm unhappy. I'm dissatisfied. I made her shut up. And that's exactly what the soda pound does. He recognized he better shut his mouth. <laughs> right now, stop it. Bring all of these rebirths of uh, uh, momentary uh, rage and anger to a halt. And pretty soon you can reflect, oh, gosh, it's been a couple of years since I got angry. You know, that kind of thought of, oh, I don't get rage the way that I used to. You, I used to wash and fume and rage for days. Now, not at all. Okay, so that's the kind of uh, hindsight that we need is to recognize that we have made a change, that we are not bound up by that which defined who we were in the past. That we can catch that stuff every time it comes up and make a positive change to it. And this we could do whether rebirth exists or reincarnation exists or not. It's irrelevant. But it's going to be really, really hard for kids who don't have the precepts and get stuck into that kind of narrow-minded right view. Those are the ones who have a chance of gaining the noble view. That in fact, one of the dangers is that someone can start hearing, oh, there's no such thing as rebirth and reincarnation, that if you get away with it right now, you've gotten away with it, so no worries, mate. And that's what he learns from Buddhism. He's going to wind up having a whole lot of trouble in life with that kind of attitude. And that's one of the dangers is, is that people misunderstand the teachings of the Buddha. They grab the Dhamma from the wrong end of the snake and it's going to turn around and bite them. That in fact, we don't want to really teach the noble right view until the student has learned to follow a whole bunch of silly little rules. <laughs> 227 at last count. And so if the monk can get a hold of all of those rules and fit into the noble society that he's in, then he's going to be let in on the real teaching of the Buddha so that he can understand that it's not that rebirth and reincarnation flat out do not exist because nobody knows that. The real and issue it's always is shining through. Pardon? It's always shining through the it's it's always shining through through this. <clears throat> Uh, the way um, those Ajans and Pikos teach. I mean, it's if you if you attend closely and you really look at every word at every sentence, you see the contradictions. Mm -hmm. 
So, does anybody have any questions about this? I think that we covered things pretty well. There's not much else to say because there's not much anything else that we know about rebirth and reincarnation. That's the place that we start and that's the place that we finish that no one here knows anyone who knows anything. And we have to be happy with that ignorance. Knowing that we're eventually and probably already in the state of having to decide, do I come, do I go, do I go, do I stay? to be or not to be, to be here or not here, to be lost in the fog of thought or to be here now. And so we have that you're missing out on something. <laughs> if you if you stay in your concepts, you're missing out. <laughs> yes, concepts are often critical and we are very critical of ourselves. If you're if you criticize anyone, that in fact, this is the parting point that we can make. Look at whom and how and why and what you criticize. And when you when you are criticizing, especially right out loud vocally, criticizing anything, you're talking to a dear friend, maybe you're at the bar, wherever, and you recognize that right now I'm criticizing. Right now I'm in a state of anger, disgust, despair, anguish, or even something very mild but I'm in a state of not liking. And so I'm criticizing. I'm finding fault with this thing. And then recognize, hey, I don't have to find out what's wrong with it. I can find out what's good about it. And that's especially true for other people is let's stop criticizing other people because that's going to help us understand when we're criticizing ourselves. And so criticism is something that we can start to look at every time that we're critical. And if you can catch it every time that you're critical and put a stop to it, that's already the state of anagami right there because you don't let it out. You zip it up. You don't talk, talk about criticizing others. Or when you do, make a big joke out of it at least because <laughs> it's not important anyway. Great. All right. Very good. So, so rebirth and reincarnation, there's an absolute difference, but most people don't know it. And that is actually a stepping stone in the direction of not caring about it, to give up on it. That the important point is that we can change. Let's do so. You are dry enough kindling to burn. That you do not have to stay saturated with the, the swamp water that we've been saturated with. We can dry out. We can change. We're not bound to that bog the way that rebirth and reincarnation try to bind us to the past and bind us to the future. Come to think of it, you're not bound up at all. You can make a change right now anytime you want to. All you have to do is remember that you can. You can make a change. Can I ask you something? Sure. This whole thing with uh, having a, a breed of um, stallions that are the same height, that are having those, those features, uh, how do you explain that? I mean, what's the 
how how is this is this is this something to 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 look at the reaction of of uh, the person you're you're talking to to see how they understand it to draw conclusions out of that or how how okay how well the first fit? thing that we have to go with is how much clinging are they doing there's also uh, another aspect to it, let's touch this very quickly, and that is, is that um, if someone is actually grieving over the loss of a husband or anything like that, they're in a bad state and they're grieving, this is not the time to teach them the Dhamma about how not to grieve at all. Now is yeah. the time to teach them how to come out right now of the grieving that they're doing right now. Okay, well, that's the same thing then as when people uh, will get strongly, strongly attached to uh, rebirth and reincarnation and the existence thereof. Yeah, yeah, but in yeah. fact, that happens with all the religious people that people only argue and fuss and fume and fight about things they actually can't prove. That if you can actually prove something to be correct, you've got the evidence right here and that, and you make the jots and point, and this is it, the court case and case closed, then we don't bother to argue. They call it in court, they call it argument, but believe me, those lawyers got to be really polite to the judge. <laughs> if they start arguing with the judge, they've lost that case. We try and to prove it to ourselves through this. Right. So we want to go with evidence and the people who want it to be true without solid evidence are the ones who cling so strongly to it. This is what religion is all about, is people get really, really attached to their religion because what they believe is all they've got. This is why the Christians would translate Shraddha as faith. Is because faith means that you believe something and you believe it strongly and run your life according to it without any evidence at all. No evidence. And they say that the absence of evidence is, is the same as the evidence of absence is not true. But it is. That if you go around looking for evidence and all you see is counter evidence, then you can begin to add the things up. I mean, put it on the graph, get a bell curve and whatnot like that. <laughs> and, and you'll find the evidence is, is that there's the signal point to that it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. That's the way of looking at it is, is that it doesn't matter what matters is, can I change? Can I make an improvement for the better? And that solid, hard rebirth, reincarnation belief is, is that, no, you're stuck in it. And the only way out of it is to control your behavior. But the noble way is, is that your behavior is going to be fine. All you need to do is get a hold of your mind. So when the child is messing up and we say uh, uh, something, I'll stop that. Uh, look at what you're doing. And another way of saying it would be is, is that look at how you feel and look what's going on inside that comes up with that behavior. But mostly in children when we're corrected is, oh, don't do that behavior. 
You can feel as bad as you want to inside. That's not our concern. Our concern is you got to do it right. You got to behave correctly. And so if we taught our children instead, is that if you if you feel the right way, then of course your behavior is going to be good enough. And so those those rules about rebirth and reincarnation are taught to the kids as a set of rules, a set of beliefs in order to control their behavior. Look at all of that. I mean, all five of those precepts are about behavior, actions, speech, livelihood. But if we don't see it from the context of a noble mind avoids those kind of things. Then it's just a set of rules, and a lot of people use precepts as just rules. Okay, so uh, one last point about the soda pond then is actually someone who is capable of doing the five precepts. Ordinary people, they use these as ideals, but they go around harming themselves and making sexual things and taking things that are not given and think they belong to them, all kinds of things that we're doing as ordinary people and not recognizing that. But when the mind is noble, then you keep track of, is this going to harm people? Is this going to harm me? If I harm other people, it's going to probably bounce back. <laughs> and so it better not to do that, that that part of the common machine works pretty well. The difference between concept and reality. Exactly, because the concepts have no boundaries as far as time, but reality has a time constraint of right here, right now. If I stick my hand in the wall socket, I get shocked right now. I don't have to wait 10 years or after I'm dead and the common machine digs me up out of the ground just to shock me because <laughs> I stuck my finger in the wall socket. No, I get shocked now. <laughs> And so that's the way of looking at comma, not long term comma, but right now comma. And when we can handle comma right now, let the future take care of itself. Let the past take care of itself. Let the dead bury the dead. Let's be here now. And so that's so the, the superiority fantasies of certain people is just the one thing is a description of reality where superiority emerges out of getting rid of the hindrances. And the other thing is aspiring something that is not there. Exactly, exactly. Wanting, in fact, that people when they have uh, when they have the belief of rebirth, they want return for their investment. They want proof. <laughs> and so they'll go to this guru and that guru who will claim that yeah, he'd been there, done that. And so you give him a lot of money and put his name up on the wall and <laughs> don't take his medicine. Welcome to the judgment world. So, Kat, what do you think about today's talk? Can you hear me? Oh. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> I think uh, I think for some reason I always see people talking about this uh, rebirths and uh, most of the time it's rebirth. Not many people seem to talk about 
reincarnation, but well, reincarnation is a dirty word in Buddhism, but people still don't know the difference. Yeah, it seems like what I thought rebirth was is that you're taking on a new body at some point, but I just seen it at some point as a mind state, like you're being born into another mind state. That's what makes more sense to me. Like, um, so yeah, it's, it, it's, help, it's very helpful to make sense of it. But I still couldn't, I, I don't know what happens when I die, and I'm not really going to think too much about it, to be honest. Dying have- is a whole lot different than being dead. <laughs> and so dying is what we need to take care of. Being dead, everybody can handle that okay, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's I'm dying. dying. That, that old question of do, uh, to be or not to be. Do I die now or do I die later? Will I cling on or will I cling off? That's the question. And we do that many times during the day. Do you take a break? You're sitting at your computer banging away and all of a sudden I'm out of here. <laughs> and so watch these these switches that we that we go through these cycles that we're in rather than looking at great big long cycles that last for lifetimes let's look at these little cycles that happen because we can see them so agnes i'm really pleased to see you it's been a while since we've talked i hope you enjoyed our talk today this was something that Beautiful talk, and it's very, very clarifying with the concepts and so on. I can recognize my own way in this, and and I also realized how um, how actually I'm thinking from a, a, about it from a slightly different perspective sometimes, but it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I realized uh, um, uh, how you put it now. It it. Uh, completely resonated with me so makes uh, it really easy too yeah practice becomes easy i mean things are really hard really difficult hard to understand when we've got all of this past we've got to carry around yeah (laughs) but i I let go of of, i got this understanding a long time ago so i've been doing this all the time but I, i i i didn't consider myself a religious person or a uh, you know, uh, into the being a Buddhist or anything. I, I came to it from another perspective, so to speak. But it's the <laughs> same thing, and I've been practicing exactly this. So uh, it resonates a lot. With me. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Marcel, do you have anything to add? No, just that the thought about rebirth and reincarnation or whatever happens after death or I don't know just creates a lot of dukkha in the moment for me so I just label it that unwholesome and try to get into a right you don't know thinking about rebirth way now here's an interesting question in that regard and that is is that if rebirth existed but up until now, I didn't believe in it, therefore it didn't exist. And now all of a sudden I believe in rebirth. What's going to be different? <laughs> or the answer on the other side is, is that, wow, I was really stuck into rebirth and now I see there's really nothing to it at all. What's going to be different? The world's not going to change. The sky's not going to turn pink. 
it turns pink because of clouds and sunshine. It doesn't turn pink because we changed our glasses. <laughs> uh, our, uh, uh, when I uh, I heard the word deathless a lot, like like being coming deathless, like you know enlightenment or whatever. So that would that be the end of becoming and the end of rebirths. To right, be the actually end of caring about dying. Okay, death is death when it has a sting. Death is death when it's the ultimate uh, dukkha. Old age, sickness, and death, that's the very place that we really understand dukkha. You're going to die, boy, you're going to die, and we're going to make sure you suffer for hours and days, and then you're going to die, okay? That's the whole point. That's the how bad can we treat people, or how bad can you get treated? And the answer to that is, hey, this isn't suffering. You guys don't know what to do. Waterboard me again one more time. I'm tougher than the uh, um, whatever torture that you give me. In fact, I'm so tough and I'm so smart that I never, ever had to get into that chamber to get tortured. Now, that's how good at being tortured I am. I never got into that room. In fact, I never got into Afghanistan. I've been able to successfully avoid the place altogether. Thank you very much. And so we don't have to worry about being tortured. But that's, that's the, the fear. We have the fear of death, of not being. We have been clinging to life and not even realizing that we're clinging to life. When we really get a, uh, a joy out of actually being alive, then we can let it go when it's time to go instead of clinging to it. So it's almost like wasting our whole lives the example, by the way, is saying goodbye to grandma. There I was in the hospital and I kept telling grandma, you're going to be OK, you're going to get better. And I leave the hospital and tomorrow she's dead. And I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. If you'd have looked at her, you'd have said, this lady's dead. <laughs> she's dying right now. I better say goodbye. And so we have a lot of remorse about what we've lost in the past. And if we care about other people and that kind of stuff and get all grieved and uh, pay high, high bills for funerals and all of that kind of stuff, then that points to the fact that we're actually afraid of death. Look at it. I mean, almost all the fear that you ever have ultimately is a fear for survival. So if we can play with death, Here's, here's an actual idea. Write down a hundred different ways to die. And then write down a paragraph about each one of them. What it's like to get your head chopped off with a guillotine. How is that different from going with an axe? Should I drink gasoline before I invite myself or should I just burn on the outside? You know, these are the kind of questions that you can look at until you get to the point that your own death is a toy to play with. <laughs> and then there's no fear of death anymore. Which means that whatever fear that you have is now real in this moment, that you were unwise enough to actually get yourself into a dangerous situation. You better wake up, boy. 
But we don't play with those old fears of life and death because nothing is a, an issue. I mean, actually, reality, you have not had a life or death situation in years. But almost every cell phone is a life or death situation. <laughs> every ring, every text, life or death. Because we're in the habit of making things life or death situations to where, in fact, nothing to it. Whatever happens in this next minute or two, you're going to survive just fine. Nothing is fatal until it is. <laughs> so let's plan on getting a good one. I kind of like skydiving. What's the difference between hitting cement versus what's hitting asphalt versus falling into a tree? You know, those kind of thoughts. We're going to figure it out. How do you go? <laughs> you got a choice. Cat, how would you die if you had a choice about how you were going to go out? How would you go? Uh I'd like to get hit by a train and just be gone like that. <laughs> oh, Anna Korea. Yes, I like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to just jump right in front and just let her rip. <laughs> so if we can look at life and death this way, then what happens after death it's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? The real issue is dying. That's the real issue that we're dealing with. And the reason that we deal with rebirth and reincarnation instead is because that's the kind of a way out. I'll survive death. And the answer is you can survive death while it's happening. Because as they say in Christianity, for Jesus, Death has no sting. It's pleasant to die. It's not a trauma. Depends upon your attitude. And so if death has no sting, now we don't have to worry about rebirth and reincarnation. This one's good enough. I'm out of here. Had enough of this place. I will not catch you later. <laughs> a parting shot the Dalai Lama has already done that because of the way that the Panchen Lama was treated by the Chinese the Dalai Lama has now abandoned the Toku system and says he's not coming back <laughs> never coming back <laughs> I love that I mean he, what wisdom he's not coming back he told everybody hey man I'm not coming back <laughs> And so that's the idea that, hey, I'm not coming back. I've had enough of this place. I've had all the joy I can stand. I'm out of here. So that's the idea for, for death. And when you have that kind of attitude, then being reborn after that, nothing to it. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. We've been doing that for two hours now. I've really enjoyed this. I'll just yap and yap about being dead. <laughs> Very good. Can I can I call you? Yes, yes, you can. Okay, not, thank not you. Not tonight, tomorrow. 
tomorrow. tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. Excellent, Thank folks. You. Veda, thanks so much for your topic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sangha. Thank you, Sangha. We'll see you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.